Well, in one of the best opening verses to an Easter hymn that I know, Phillips Brooks writes, Tomb, thou shalt not hold him longer. Death is strong, but life is stronger. Stronger than the dark, the light. Stronger than the wrong, the right. Faith and hope triumphant say that Christ will rise on Easter day. Today is our day. Today is the greatest day in the Christian calendar. It is the reason there is a Christian calendar, the reason there is a church, the reason that we are here. Today we celebrate that Jesus is alive and that he gives new life to those who believe in him. But it's fair to say that this is an abnormal thing to celebrate. Now, Jesus' story as a wandering teacher was fairly normal in some ways. Like a lot of leaders of movements before him, he wasn't the first person in Judea who had a following who thought that he must be the Messiah. He wasn't the first one to be put to death by Rome's power either. This happened from time to time in Judea in those days. That was normal. It was also normal that when the leader was put to death, the followers scattered. And that's what happened with Jesus' disciples as well, briefly. But then some things happened that were not normal. See, it was not normal for a body to disappear that was laid behind a heavy stone and guarded by Roman soldiers. It was not normal for more and more people to claim that their leader was alive, that they had seen him, that they'd walked with him, that they talked with him, that they'd eaten with him. It was not normal for these followers to become more and more fearless in proclaiming their message of faith centered on their resurrected master. It was not normal for their numbers to explode with reports of supernatural powers drawing people to them. If Jesus' story was in any way normal, well, then it would be a footnote in history. But because it's so incredibly, wonderfully abnormal, it is the best known and most told story in the history of this world. But not only that, it's a story that's changed my own life and is shaping who I am. And in many ways that I am so thankful for, despite my failings and, and flaws. And best of all, we know how this story ends. Jesus wins. He destroys death. He rescues all those who call on his name. He ushers them into a new and eternal and resurrected life. And we know this to be true because of this day. So on this day, I want to dig into the resurrection we celebrate. I mean, why believe it? Why is it important? And what does it mean to live in resurrection hope? So why believe in the resurrection? I mean, on Easter, Christians everywhere will turn to passages like Matthew 28. And we'll read how on that third day, after Jesus had been crucified and buried, well, some of the women who followed him, they went to Jesus' tomb to put spices on his body. But instead of guards and a heavy stone, they found the tomb open and they saw these men in these electrifyingly white outfits waiting for them. And those men who must have been more than men, they reminded Mary and Mary what Jesus had told them. And they said, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And so they ran to tell the others, but on the way they met Jesus. Greetings, Jesus said, do not be afraid. Jesus was alive. It's an amazing story, for some an unbelievable story. But if we don't believe the Bible's account, then what's the alternative explanation? Because the, the main facts of the Easter story 
aren't heavily disputed. I mean, Jesus did live. He had a public ministry. He was put to death by Rome. We know these things. And then his followers were inspired by their certainty that he'd return to life. They endured rejection and imprisonment and death to spread their message. We know this to be true of the early church, whatever our source, whatever our perspective. And none of those people got rich or powerful by doing this. There wasn't anything to be gained at this time by being a Christian. They used no force or violence to coerce or compel anyone, as some other religions did at their outset. Instead, they cared for each other and their neighbors. They worshipped faithfully as this new kind of community which broke down the barriers of gender and race and class in this way that was utterly new. That's how it began. And so far, I haven't heard a very compelling theory about how you get from Jesus buried in a borrowed tomb to the rise of this early church, to the billions of people followers following Jesus today around this world. I mean, it doesn't make sense at all to me, apart from what the Bible tells us. That Jesus is alive, that resurrection is real, and that matters each and every day of these lives of ours. Now, it is the reality and the implications of the resurrection that what is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. And we had a section of that passage read earlier. This chapter begins with the Apostle Paul actually laying out his own evidence for the resurrection. And he says, okay, exhibit A, Corinthians, is your salvation. You received the gospel. You believed it. It's brought about real and dramatic change in many of your lives. And it takes a living Savior to do this. It says, exhibit B is what you all know happened after Easter. And he writes, from what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, his half-brother, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. Many, many witnesses, including quite a few who were inclined to be skeptical. They all encountered the risen Christ. And then Paul says, Exhibit C is that according to the scriptures part. The religious scholars of the day might not have seen it, but Jesus' humble life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection fit various Old Testament teachings that are found in the prophets and the Psalms and elsewhere. Now, Paul's readers already did think it was true that Jesus had been resurrected, but Paul spends a bunch of time on this because he wants them to understand the full importance of that. Because Jesus has been raised, he says resurrection is real, and that is essential to Christian faith. And if Christ has not been raised, he says, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. There's no version of Christianity where we learn nice things from a good teacher named Jesus who lived long ago. That is, that's just of little value. The Bible tells us that humanity has a problem, that our hearts are sick, that we can't fix this, this sin issue by ourselves. Only God can solve this problem, and, only, and not by sending us a good example or a wise teacher, but by sending us a Savior who could take that sin on himself and give to us new life, God's life. Paul writes that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Christ has indeed been raised. 
And here is where the short passage actually summarizes the core of the Bible from start to finish. He says, For since death has come through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Right? The Bible starts with humanity living as God created them, sharing in the life of God himself. But they rebel against God's rule, and Adam is the representative of sin and death entering into the world. And these have become characteristic of every person who came after him. So for as in Adam, all die. But Jesus then came, bringing the resurrection of the dead, a destiny that will be shared by all those who find their life in him. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And Jesus is the first fruits. He is the very first part of the harvest that shows what is to come. And what is to come, we read, is Jesus' final victory over all things. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority and power. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Everything hostile to God loses Everything that opposes life and love will be defeated. And those who belong to Jesus will get to live in the world that results as resurrected people. Now, Paul clearly had some resurrection critics. And they wanted to know, like, well, how are the dead going to be raised, Paul? What kind of body are they going to have? And some people today will also, you know, joke or even mock the Easter story, talking about, you know, zombies or something. As though what we're talking about is the reanimation of corpses or the reconstruction of what was but Paul keeps going and he tells them, no, the harvest metaphor still works. He says, Jesus is the first fruits. And then he says, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, just a seed. But God gives it a body that he, as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. A seed does not grow into a bigger seed. Right? It grows into something else altogether. And so it is, he says, with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Not a spiritual body that means non-physical, by the way. Christians have never thought the Bible destines us to kind of float around as spirits in some kind of eternity in you know heavenly clouds somewhere playing harps. That's just not the picture that's painted, but rather something that's more of a return to Eden, a redeemed earth where many things are very recognizable, but where death and disease and sadness and grief are gone, and we can be in the very presence of God once again. When God created us, he made us as embodied beings, and our bodies are very important to who we are, and that continues to be true through our resurrected bodies, although they won't have the same weaknesses and limitations that these ones do. And this is how Paul concludes this bit of teaching about the resurrection and how vital it is to Jesus' following faith. He says, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. 
He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what what should this mean for how we live in light of the resurrection? And off the top, I think, for one thing, we should just be clear about what we hope for. In the church, sometimes we talk about heaven or eternal life. Sometimes I teach about these things in a way that maybe it's too vague. I mean, there is lots that we don't know about how God is going to work everything out. But the Bible gives us a lot of details about what we hope for. God created us as whole people, body and soul. And God redeems us as whole people as well, body and soul. And that begins when we give ourselves to Jesus, when we believe in him and what he did for us at Easter. We ask to receive his Holy Spirit. We seek to trust him from day to day. And we get this new life, which then does not end. I mean, at some point we will die, or our bodies will sleep, to use the language of the New Testament. And our souls at that time will be safe and secure in Christ. But then when Jesus has completed his victory over evil, when he reigns fully over everything, his resurrected people will live and even rule alongside him with their bodies having been reawakened and glorified. So we shouldn't be too uncertain or vague about this because that's, that's what people without faith do. They'll talk about a person who just died and said, well, you know, they're at peace now and well, at least they're not suffering or, well, you know, at least they're at rest. And, and what do these things even mean to them? I mean, do they think that that person who died has gone to some kind of nebulous afterlife they can't quite describe? Do they think that that person ceased to exist? What, what are they saying? Christians believe in resurrection, in Jesus' resurrection, in our resurrection. And it is a very different thing to live with resurrection hope than it is to live without it. It's a very different thing to approach death and grief when we have resurrection hope. When someone who follows Jesus has died, we grieve because they're temporarily absent from our lives, but not because they're gone. In fact, we have faith that they are better than ever and that we will see them again. 1 Corinthians, uh, Thessalonians 4 says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It is a very different thing to approach the limitations and failings of our own bodies with resurrection hope. Quite a few in our church family deal with daily pain, with limited mobility, with lingering illness. You have struggles that prevent you from living comfortably or doing some of the things you wish you could do. And that is hard. But in faith, I know that your story doesn't end with, and then they suffered more and more until eventually they were gone. No, no, it ends with the words of Revelation 21. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And in these present hardships or sufferings, we can also hold to the encouragement in 2 Corinthians 4 that says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I have two things that, I, that I'd hope to leave you with that maybe you'll carry with you for a little while. 
And the first is that I, I just think we should get more comfortable with celebrating the resurrection, with drawing hope and encouragement for today, for what we believe is coming. I mean, Paul has this to say, and I think it's a, it's a powerful verse in this chapter. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's basically saying there's nothing sadder than a Christian without resurrection hope. If we're serious about Jesus, let's be serious about the resurrected life that we expect to spend with him and with one another. Don't attempt a version of Christianity where you're just trying to live up to the impossible standard of Jesus without him as a living Savior there to forgive and guide and uphold you. Because that's, that's just a recipe for shame and exhaustion. Don't try to obey Jesus' command to take up my cross and follow me without believing the assurance that if you do take up that cross, if you follow him into hardship or into danger, we have to believe the promise that he will, in fact, keep you safe and secure and live in that resurrection hope. Otherwise, this is an invitation to disappointment and regret. Our faith is meant to be grounded in resurrection hope. That should be celebrated, it should be anticipated, it should be a source of joy and peace for us who can say in faith that Jesus is alive. The second thing I'd like to leave you with is that celebrating the resurrection ought to give us a different outlook on how we use our present lives and our present bodies. In verse 31 in this chapter, Paul says something along these lines. He says, If I have no more than human hopes, well, what have I gained by facing death and hardship so often? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's essentially saying it doesn't make any sense for him to have worked so hard and risked so much if he was only thinking about this life. I mean, if you want to just live for this life, you can do that, right? Treat people like you're not ultimately accountable to God for what you do. Use your time and money just for whatever interests you most in the moment. Don't submit to anyone. Invent your own way of doing life through your own wisdom. Like You can do that. But there's, there's a catch. My wife Amy got a time management book out of the library a few weeks ago. Now, she didn't actually have time to read the whole thing before she had to send it back. That's both a joke and the truth. But there was one part of the book that stood out because the philosophy of the book essentially was that we all get about 4,000 weeks on this earth. And the book would say, don't waste your time by doing anything that, would make those 4, 000, that wouldn't make those 4,000 weeks more enjoyable. Like, that's the goal. Because after all, once you have ceased to exist at the end of those 4,000 weeks, you will not care what you built that might help others. You won't care whose lives you influenced or affected or how much you got done in general. So don't do anything that doesn't make you feel more personally satisfied now. And that, of course, makes perfect sense if you take God out of the equation or if you have no resurrection hope. But this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, it ends with the very opposite conclusion. And after making the case for why we should have resurrection hope for the future, Paul declares, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord will, is never in vain. Right? Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Maybe you do get 4,000 weeks on this earth, in this life. But what's the best way to use them if they are just the beginning? Right? You can't take your stuff with you. 
but you are going to take you with you. So who are you becoming? And who are you going to be sharing eternity with? How are you going to invite people to be part of that? I mean, how did I come to receive resurrection hope and belief in Jesus? How did you come, those of you who, who share this faith? How did you come to have that gift of faith? And in, in part, it is because that early church fearlessly and selflessly spread the gospel. And it's because generation after faithful generation lived as disciples and carried the message of Jesus further and further and built and established churches and ministries and studied and taught the Bible and dedicated their time and their passion and their resources to the work of the Lord. So what work of the Lord will you give yourself to so that future generations will get the opportunity you received to know and follow Christ? Resurrection hope, it helps us to hold our time and our resources more loosely in, in this life, anticipating the rich rewards to come. And the blessing in this is that when, we, when we're generous in giving what Jesus actually asks of us to give, it never leaves us feeling poor. It doesn't leave us feeling that we're lacking something. It helps us become people who have gratitude and peace in an increasingly anxious age. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Today is our day. Today we say, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And after we sleep in his care, he will raise us too into a world where death is destroyed and dominion and authority and power belong entirely to Jesus. And we can live that now. Today, we can live in the hope of the resurrection. And this hope can make our trials feel like light and momentary troubles compared to the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And in the face of fear or loss, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We don't know how many weeks that any of us will get in this life. But we can believe that each one will be better if we celebrate what Christ has done and what we trust that he is going to do. And whatever we can do for him in this life will never be a waste. Resurrection hope is not simply for one day. It is for today. And so today I want to end by asking, what needs resurrecting in your life? Where do you need to receive new life? God's life. Because the God who can bring life out of death, he can do it. So what needs resurrecting? Do you need your sense of hope or optimism or the will to move forward resurrected? Because you want each day to feel like a blessed opportunity and not a tiring obligation. Do you need a relationship resurrected? Is there one in your life that, where it feels like conflict has grown or distance has increased and it's just become too much? But it's not beyond God's power to heal. Do you need a sense of purpose resurrected? Maybe you're not sure what on earth you're supposed to be making of your life right now. But God can reveal that to you and he can show you what the work of the Lord that he has in mind for you is. Maybe you need a sense of trust resurrected so that you can leave behind fear and, and worry in this uncertain and unstable world. But God is there to be your rock and your fortress. Do you need a sense of disillusionment with something, maybe with the church, resurrected? In this 
in this time, God can, can show you all that still is good and is worthy and what your part can be in it. So let's not be afraid to ask God for big things. Let's, let's pray for a moment. The God of resurrection. Lord God, I give you thanks for this day, our day, and I pray that you would help us just to secure our, our trust, just to, to regain or to grow or to, to find faith in the resurrected life that you promised. Jesus was the first fruits. He proved it. He said that he would be raised after three days, and then he pulled it off. And anyone who could do that is someone we should listen to. What he showed us is what we can look forward to. And when we can look forward to that, then we can go through anything in this life, not just for our own good, but even for the good of others. And Lord God, I pray that if there are people here who are buckling under the, the strains and stresses, that you would lift them up, that perhaps you would even ease those burdens and give them help. But God, also I pray that you would strengthen us with, with resurrection hope so that we can bear what we need to bear, recognizing that it's not just about now. It's not just about these 4,000 weeks. It's not just about what I can get out of this life because it's not about me. That the greatest freedom and, and joy and, and, and the most life comes from living for you and trusting you with the good future you promise. So that may that be true. May we live in the light of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.